listening to Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. Did you go out with her too? No. I don't know what's going on out there. I, 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 yeah, I pity the fool who goes up against the, the power of the Hammer Factor podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. All right, let's do this. Let's go. Welcome to Hammer Factor episode fifty-five of the Hammer Factor series. My name is John Grace. I'd like to introduce my co-host here on the show, policy director of the Outdoor Alliance, Lewis Geltman, and co-owner of Immersion Research, John Weld. How's it going, boys? Good. Hot. Now, re- now, real quick, before we begin, this episode is sponsored by CKS Online. That's coloradokayak.com. CKS, CKS Online is a business that is under separate ownership from CKS Main Street, home of the hammerhead extraordinaire Fred Morrison. CKS Online is also not located in Buena Vista, Colorado, home of the Buena Vista Boogie Board in SUP River Park, and the paddler formerly known as Earl. CKS Online is, however, located in Salida, Colorado, and is an e-commerce paddle sports retailer with a warehouse pickup option. We're here to service all of your paddle sports needs, ranging from drain plugs, wing nuts, and cam straps to rafts, sups, whitewater boats, and everything in between. Use promo code, all in caps, WELD STILL SUPS, all one word, WELD STILL SUPS. I'll repeat that one more time, WELD STILL SUPS for 10% off your next purchase with CKS Online. It brings me so much joy to say that. I don't know why. I know. Just say it over and over. (laughs) Dude, the first paddle I ever bought at full retail was from CKS. And I broke it the first day that I had it. And Was it still owned by Jim Solquist at the time, or was this under the Earl and Chad days? Ah, it was right around that zone. I don't know exactly when, but I do know that I broke it. I totally messed up the move at go left and snapped it. And... I told them exactly what happened, and they they couldn't warranty it, but they did give me a new one at cost, which I thought was rad. So, CKS Online, big thanks to them for uh, sponsoring the Hammer Factor. We had was mad up about that story, by the way. But what do you mean? The first paddle you ever bought, and you you broke it at Go Left. That I bought at full retail. Oh. You know, because I had bought used paddles or my parents had bought me a paddle. But this was the okay, first one right. that I ever went out and bought at full price. All right. Okay. All right. I'm just vetting your story a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> I like that. Um, so, big show today. Man, we have a very special guest uh, coming on the Hammer Factor today, Dr. Douglas Hetzler. I'll introduce Dr. Douglas Hetzler, but pretty much all that needs to be known is he's the Michelangelo of the ear canal. That's, that is, that's not him making, this is other people are saying this about him. As well, we're kind of, uh, you know, we're going to take the show off the rails today and we're going to do away with the listener mail and the normal kind of uh, format we've been going with. And we're going to put Mr. John Weld in the hot seat. And I Which is news to me, by the way. This is, <laughs> I've learned this about a minute and a half ago. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're, it'll be this, super interesting to see where that goes. This is going to be what happens when, when you two are as unprepared as I typically am. We'll see if, if the show manages to survive. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually a, 
a really good uh, <laughs> summation of what's going on here. All right, let's see if we can get the doctor on the line. And to plastic surgery audiology, this is Debbie. How may I help you? Hi, my name is John Grace from the Hammer Factor. I am uh, scheduled to have a call with Dr. Hetzler. Okay. Today? Uh, yes, today at 2 p.m. Oh, he's not in the office on Mondays. Um, he might be coming in for just that call, and I'm not aware of it. Uh, let's see if we have any. Does he have an extension me... or anything like that? Um, I can check to see if he's there. Hold on one moment. Thank you. Uh-huh. Maybe he thought you had his cell number. Let me check my mail. That's probably why he decided we could do 2 o'clock today, because he wasn't going to be at work. Okay, John, thanks for holding. He is at his desk, so I'm going to transfer you over. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Hello. Hi, Dr. Hetzler. My name is John Grace, and you are on yeah. the phone today with Lewis Geltman and John Weld here at the Hammer Factor. How are you? Great. So are you guys all in the same room, or is this a, a multi-geographic uh, connection? Here today? <laughs> we're, on a Skype, we're on a Skype call, so we're all over the place. We got Lewis, who's in Portland, okay. uh, Weld, who's in West Virginia, and I am in North Carolina. And I believe you are in Santa Cruz? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you big time for uh, coming on the show today. I know uh, Mr. Sure. Weld reached out for you. Um, before we get too deep into this, I want to uh, provide our listeners with a little background. You were born in Iowa and went to yep. the University of Iowa Medical School. Correct. You have done an Eskimo roll in a kayak. <laughs> Interesting talk- story there. So I, I did an internship in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and one of the surgery uh, professors I worked with there was a kayaker on some of the rivers there in Wisconsin. And he one morning said, hey, you guys want to learn how to do Eskimo roll? I said, yeah, I always wondered how to do that. So we went to a swimming pool and uh, played around with it a little bit. And I thought, well, this is great fun, but I haven't uh, actually had a chance to take it out into the wild and uh, try it on a real river yet. Okay, cool. So well, you, you actually did it. If, yeah. if you had got on the river, chances are you never would have continued your medical career. You would have been <laughs> okay. ruined for life like the rest of us. <laughs> so it's probably a good thing. <laughs> to, to finish your intro, you're currently working at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation. You have a severe avers- aversion to immersing your body in cold water, and you are often True. referred to as the Michelangelo of the ear canal. Yeah, there was a patient of mine who was quoted as saying that in one of, in a newspaper article here locally. Yeah, okay. I would, I would, I would latch onto that title and I, if someone gave me the, I'm the Michelangelo of dry tops. It's going, it's going, going straight on the business cards. <laughs> Absolutely. So to back up just a second here for our listeners, uh, you are a surgeon who performs um, surgeries on surfer's ear, kayaker's ear to basically give people their hearing back and everything else involved with that. And you have a technique that is a little different from the normal technique. And, uh, we're, and, uh, we're here to talk about it. 
Yeah, the you know this condition is kind of an interesting thing. If you go back far enough, like into the 1800s, they were seeing people that had this thing. They weren't kayakers, they weren't surfers, but people would develop this for a variety of reasons. And you know, you go back far enough, people were using chisels to take these things out because that's all they had. And then drills came along. Actually, dental drills came along about the 1870s. And people started using that to do various ear procedures. And there were people in England who got in kind of disputes about who could do it faster, and they could do it in 20 minutes. It's kind of like a drill press type device. And they weren't they weren't protecting the skin. Hopefully, they weren't putting it through the eardrum. But uh, and anesthesia was kind of sketchy, and healing took months. But they could do it in 20 minutes. Um, things have obviously changed a lot since then. Anesthesia's gotten better. We have microscopes. We have sterile technique. Um, but, you know, worldwide, the most common way of taking these things out is, is some fashion of using a drill. And uh, I've been in Santa Cruz now about 30 years, and the first 10 years I was here and seeing people that had this severe problem, you know, the only thing I had to fall back on was the training I had in using drills. But my concern was the noise that the drill creates in somebody's ear, and then also it's really kind of tricky to keep the skin away so you don't tear up the skin. So we started developing a little different technique, and so now it's an operation we do via the ear canal using little one-millimeter chisels, and it's well suited to that because the bone grows in a little layer, so it becomes like working on a crystal or like working on wood grain to, to shave these things off. And uh, it's it's much easier to protect the skin. You don't inflict all the noise of the drilling. And so it's it's really worked out well for patients. So to back up just a second, what is kayaker's ear? Like what exactly is the problem? So what it is, it's bone growths that are created along the ear canal. And the reason these happen is that the skin of the ear canal is the thinnest skin of the body. It's literally paper thin. And so it's a very poor insulator. So you get cold water in there. You know, if somebody's in, uh, kayaking in, in snow melt, um, the cold water stimulates a reaction in the skin that causes pressure on a layer called periosteum, which is next to bone. Periosteum responds to pressure by generating new bone. So over typically over hundreds or thousands of hours in some cases, new bone can be created. And as that bone grows, it can potentially close off the ear canal. Like how much growth, like how much growth are you talking about? I mean, I'm picturing just millimeters of growth can make a huge difference. Well, the, you know, the ear canal diameter is about seven millimeters. And okay. I mean, I've had seen some people where I've gotten seven millimeter diameter pieces of bone out of their ear. Uh-huh. Um, there's usually, there's usually three converging bone formations that kind of, but there's all variations. I mean, these things are like fingerprints in a way. Everybody's ears different in how they grow these. Um, but yeah, it, it's not a huge area. I mean, the, the volume of a normal ear canal is about a sixth of a teaspoon. So it's a pretty small area. Hmm. So when this bone starts growing, it can create sort of like a dam in there and then water can get stuck behind it or debris or, you know, skin layers that normally would be sloughing off and migrating out of the ear. And then you get things plugging up and trapping water, leading to infections and all that goes along with that. So what's the, like, what, what, what's the threshold for water temperature for this to start happening? Well, I saw a study where they talked about 68 degrees. And so, you know, that's like here on the Northern California coast, our ocean is between 50 to 60 degrees. And I don't know, for you guys that are in the, the rivers, I don't know what sort of water temperature range you're exposed to, but you know, the water never gets above 68 here. So as you go further south along the California coast, I mean, there's still people in San Diego that have this problem. You don't see it happening in the tropics. Um, you may get very mild versions of it because somebody has wet ears and there's a stiff wind blowing. That evaporative cooling may cause us a very mild version of this, but nothing like the, the cold water immersions. I mean, do you see, I mean, you, I, we learned about you through a whole bunch of kayakers who have have seen you. I mean, how many do you, is kayaking, or do you see kayakers often, or, I, or is yeah. it just a vast majority of your practice surfers? 
majority, I mean, just because of where we are here, I mean, this is a per capita population, there's a lot more surfers than kayakers, but no, I've yeah. seen quite a number of kayakers. And I think in some respects, I think kayakers may develop it a little faster than surfers do. Cause I think you guys must be in a little bit colder water, you know, if you're getting the spring snow melts. And so, I mean, I, I remember seeing one guy who said he'd been kayaking just two years and he looked like somebody had been surfing for 10 yeah. and he was a local guy and he hadn't really put time in, in the ocean. So, um, yeah, the colder the water, the more of a phenomenon, the more stimulus as far as creating new bone. So what's the, I mean, <clears throat> I guess what I've always heard is that there, you generally don't show any symptoms for this until your ear kind of closes up, is that, and then you can't hear anything, or what, what, how do you know this is affecting you? Like, how can you tell? I think, I think most people would say the earliest symptom is, you know, water trapping. I mean, I've had people tell me if they don't wear earplugs in the shower, they can get water in there that'll stay stuck for a week. Right. And that's usually somebody that's pretty far along, but... Um, we all have kind of an acute angle, the way our eardrum is angled relative to the front wall of the ear canal. And it can be like a, uh, what we call a meniscus. Water can sometimes get stuck in there for anybody. But if you're sitting there and having to bang on the side of your head and water's just not coming out, it's a repeated problem, you may have some narrowing. And, uh, I mean, you know, one of the challenges, of course, nobody can see in their own ear. But uh, one of the things that's come along, and I actually was just looking at this earlier today, there's some devices that are now on the market that cost in the range of $20.00 that are like a USB video camera. You can hook into, a, uh, in some cases, a phone or a laptop. They're both PC and Mac-based that they sell on Amazon. And these are like 1.3 megapixel cameras. You could stick one of these in your ear if you ever want to know what your own ear looks like. Whoa. So there's, huh. a, there's a camera that anybody could buy and actually take anybody a picture? Anybody can buy. Yeah. These things, I mean, I, I actually had a patient tell me about this. And so I, I actually bought a bunch of these. I've been handing them out to various people. And yeah, you can go on something like Amazon and look for, it's like a 1.3 megapixel camera. There's a bunch of companies that market them. Um, they look like, it looks like kind of a pencil device with a, you know, a wire coming out at the end. And I bought some of these and the images are as good as some of the thousand dollar video cameras that we've had in the office. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it just kind of shows how the trickle down effect of technology. So what are you looking for if you're poking in your own ear with one of these things? What, well, how do you know? You have basically, a... yeah, I mean, until you've looked at normal ears, you're not quite sure what you're seeing. But in, you know, most people, when they look in their ear, they can see kind of the oval area of the eardrum, which is kind of a grayish sort of like wax paper type looking structure. And, uh, you know, if there's a lot of big knobs in the way or you've got wax or swollen skin or something like that. But, um, I mean, I'm almost encouraging people to get this kind of thing because then you can monitor what's going on in there. Just like, you know, many people are happy to stick Q-tips down in their ear and do random things. Um, without really knowing what they're doing or what's going on in there, and they may make things worse. <laughs> uh, but if you can, you know, at least see what's going on, then you can have a better idea. You know, do you have a problem? Is there wax there? Is there bone growth? Is there signs of infection or something else? Oh wow! I will definitely be including that in the show notes of this show. That's awesome. <laughs> like as soon as we get done talking, I will order one. Of those. Yeah, just, you know, you know, go online and look at some of the stuff. But just there's there's some cheaper ones that I mean, you know, less megapixels. But the image isn't so great. But like it's a 1.3 megapixel. It looks like a pencil. Wiring come out of it again, twenty thirty dollars, and they're they're actually I think they're marketing for people to do like self care. There's a bunch of little attachments you put in. The end. Most people should probably throw those attachments away and just use the camera. But, um, yeah, it's a great way to monitor what's going on. Ah, this is already so, fascinating. We haven't even started. <laughs> We're going to have, like, a whole crop of amateur ENTs in the, the takeout parking lot before you know it. Yeah. So my wife in 2003, and I think you guys, were, you guys were the same River Festival. There was a guy going around, and he had, like, a contest, right? And, 
and he was doing he was scoping people's ears and telling people you know in the contest who had the worst surfer's ear and my wife's ears he mentioned had some degree of problem but she did not want to deal with this because she just heard the surgery was miserable and just had months and months of recovery time um and in 2003 i'm assuming she was referring to sort of this drilling technique you, you mentioned um i mean w- is, was that the case with drills is that you just it's just a, a, a that, nasty you know procedure? again the usual thing you're going to find is somebody's going to want to use a drill i mean yeah. it's worldwide there there are world-class ear surgeons you know excellent ear surgeons who their preferred technique is we're going to make a cut behind the ear, peel the ear forward, peel the skin of the ear out, ream it out with a drill, and put all that back. Right. Um, and again, they're fabulous ear surgeons doing everything else, but I think, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make the case for these people. I mean, I've given talks throughout the world, published in medical journals on this kind of thing, to show that there is a better way. And I mean, I've had a number of my patients, probably 10% of the people I've operated have had that operation. The bone regrew, and they somehow found their way to me and had surgery with me so they can compare both techniques. Those right. people have uniformly told me better experience, faster healing, less pain. You know, with what, what, with, what they, with what they now know, they suggest nobody ever have that other operation done. But at the same time, you know, worldwide, that's what you're going to find more readily available. That's the training people have. That's the instrumentation they have. And so that's what they're going to do. But, Is it possible to go out and get like, a, I mean, just get have a really bad surgeon and do it? Does it have you seen terrible procedures done on people where the guy just... Or, when we just screwed it up terribly. Well, or is that I mean, I wouldn't say terrible, but I mean, there. You know, this is this is. I guess I would say this is an easy operation to do badly, mm-hmm. um, and there are things to be concerned about down inside the ear and around that area. And it's, it's. I mean, if you if you start looking at like some of the surfing websites or I don't maybe the, maybe the kayaking websites talk about it, but you know, some people have some horror stories they'll share. Sure. Um, so it's you know, there's important things around that area. The, the jaw joint is the front wall of the ear canal. In the back wall of the ear canal, there's the nerve that goes to your facial muscles. You've got the eardrum down in the depths. Um, so there's there's important structures around where you're working. Before we get into exactly your technique, the way you do this, how can people prevent this? Like a, a surfer or a paddler, how can they just make sure they never come to you? The best way is if you can keep the cold water out of your ear canals. So again, we're saying anything less than 68 degree water. So using earplugs in some form. And there's a variety of earplugs that are out there that can be fine. And, you know, you don't have to spend a whole lot of money on custom plugs or anything like that. There's things that are sold in drugstores and, um, you know, probably swim supply places and that kind of thing. Here we have, you know, of course, have surf shops, and they're all very attuned to it here. So they have earplugs for sale here. Um, and it really kind of comes down to is, you know, how well do you want to hear? I mean, if you don't you know, need to hear particularly well, you can have some very occlusive earplugs that will keep water out just fine. There are a few models out there that have little channels and membranes that let sound through but keep the water out if people do feel like they want to hear better. And then there's people in Australia, there's a product called BlueTac, which is an office supply product. It's sold in strips. You tear off a little piece, stick it on the wall, and put a piece of paper on it just to hold things up. So guys in Australia have said that they wad this stuff up, put it in their ear, and it keeps the water out very nicely. It's very sticky. It tends not to fall out, and it's cheap and easy. So there's a lot of things people are using out there. What about what about the wax earplugs? I use those a lot. Yeah, those are fine. Yeah, anything like that's fine. I mean, and you probably don't have to keep every single drop out. It's just if you can cut down on the free flow of water in and out, that's going to be to your advantage. And so the less of that free flow of cold water in and out of the ear is the best way to prevent this. So what's the procedure? People come to see you. What, like, how how, how long does it take? What's the what what kind of you know post surgery? What kind of how long do they be okay. out of the water? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so, so to this point, I've had people come from, I think I, I've lost track, but I think it's like about 14 countries and 26 states in the U.S. 
And so if somebody's coming from a great distance, uh, we'll try to coordinate things so we could like, you know, if, it's, if somebody's looked in their ear and it's been established, yes, you have a problem, you need the surgery. <clears throat> we could see them one day and, you know, if we schedule all ahead of time and eventually do the operation the next day. It's under general anesthesia, so it's in an operating room under general anesthesia, totally asleep, and it's done via the ear canal. And so there's no external incisions, and I'm using a microscope looking down inside there. And even though they're under anesthesia, we put some local anesthetic into the skin to help minimize any bleeding. And then just working down the ear canal, make typically three separate incisions inside the ear canal to get the skin away from where we need to shave the bone down. And then just start incrementally shaving it down with these little one millimeter chisels. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the, the really art to these operations is deciding when to stop, when have you taken enough. And so my goal is to be able to see the entire perimeter of the eardrum and also have a nice outflow channel along the bottom. If you look at, if you start getting one of these little cameras and looking at people's ears, a lot of people have kind of a convex mound in the lower part of the ear canal that functions sort of a dam. Water can get stuck behind that. And so we're trying to actually improve on the original design, make a nice outflow track there. So if water gets in, it'll tend to flow out more readily. And then in doing this, we're preserving all the skin. And so if you have a skinned over a big mound and you take the mound away, there should be plenty of skin to cover that base area. So at the end of the operation, there's typically good skin to cover everywhere. And then I put some antibiotic ointment along the, uh, along the incisions that I made inside their cotton ball in the ear and we're done. Um, it is possible to do both ears at one operation. The main downside is that uh, people's ears will plug up with blood clot initially for a while afterward until they get the ear clots cleaned out, usually about five days after surgery. Um, but then, you know, then they go off to the recovery room, go home the same day, or leave the facility the same day. Um, once you're over the effects of the anesthesia, which is pretty well should be by the next day, you can be vigorous, you can run, you can sweat, you can lift weights. Um, we just want to keep water out until the skin is well healed. Um, for people that I'm taking care of locally, I usually see them once a week during the healing process, clean clots, crust, scabs, get the skin to heal as quick as possible. Usually we're getting people healed at about three weeks. Occasionally it takes a little bit longer. Um, if somebody has infected skin at the time we're doing the operation, we can't clear the infection beforehand. That'll you know, prolong the healing process. But usually back in the water uh, three, four weeks uh, wow. with, with unrestricted activities. And so if someone's with, coming from out of town, if someone's coming from out of town, how would, they deal with, how would you deal with that post So then what we do there is we, what we ask them to do, and I, just, like, I send a whole information packet to these people, but I ask them to try to you know, establish connection with a local ear, nose, and throat doctor before they come for surgery with me. So I mean, some people will come up out of town, have the surgery with me on, like, say, a Friday. I may see them, and they may stick around, and I'll see them in the office on Tuesday or Wednesday, get the clots out, and then they'll go back home and then see their local ENT at weekly intervals to do the care that I would do. You know, we give them all the instructions. It's all written out, and so the local doctor can take care of things from there. Um, and that's generally worked out pretty well. I mean, I think, uh, you know, if, if doctors aren't doing the surgery at all, they may be a little more conservative and prolong the healing interval until they'll let you back in the water. But uh, it's generally worked out pretty well with people uh, doing it that way. So, and back- is this cost? Is this covered by insurance? Or, oh, sorry. Yeah, it is covered. Yeah, it's not considered cosmetic surgery. It's it's covered by insurance. Uh, yeah, routinely. What's it okay. cost? Well, the range, uh, depending on which facility I use, but I mean, the range tends to be um, for the operating room, anesthesiologist, me to do the surgery. If people are having one ear done, I think those three things add up to about $8,000. If they have both ears done, it's like $13,000 if people are paying total cash. If they have any form of insurance, insurances have contracts that knock all those numbers down, and then it comes down to whatever your copay and deductible is. Wow, that's not that expensive. So, like, I've had a friend do this, and they... They cut his ears off of his head, like you say, and peeled them back. Why do you, why with this technique do you not have to do that? But with the drill, you have to like cut the ears off. Partly because with the with the chisel, you can use the chisel next to skin, underneath skin, and preserve the skin. With the drill, 
you know, it's going to kind of tear things up, shred things up, so you want to get the skin out of the way. So by making the cut behind, peeling the ear forward, peeling all the skin out of the ear canal, you get all the skin way away, you get your drill in there, do what you want, and then put all the skin back. So you're just getting the skin way away from the drill. Um, some people also, in the process of doing the surgery, if the drill tears up some skin, they may put a skin graft in there to kind of fill the gaps. And I've never had to do that because we're so good at preserving the skin. But again, it just it kind of comes down to the operation where you go in from behind the ear. It makes it easier for the surgeon, but the patient kind of pays the price for that. When people are uh, when people are growing bone in their ear like that, do, is one of the symptoms of that? Does that affect your ability to equalize pressure underwater? If you, you know, if you're retaining water, people have described that. If it's you know if it's open, if there's air behind the bone growth, no, it shouldn't uh, shouldn't tend to cause uh, an equalization issue. That's more typically uh, involved with the eustachian tube, the tube that connects from behind the eardrum to the back of the nose. So like if you're going up and down on an airplane, and you can't pop your ears, you build up pressure. That's usually more related to the eustachian tube than it would be anything in the ear canal. But in general, a symptom of this would be that you just can't get water out of your ear. You go in the water and it just will not come out. That yeah. would be a flag. That's, that's, that's typically the earliest symptom. Although, there are, as I said, there are people that can have fairly open ear canals and still have that acute angle from the front, front wall of the ear canal to the eardrum that can tend to trap water a little bit. But, um, yeah, if it's really prolonged retention of water, it tends to be the earliest symptom that people notice. What about, what about difficulty, what, difficulty hearing in, like, social spaces with a lot of background noise and that kind of thing. Is that, is that common? I think it's just cause you're old. Well, John, unless, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's yeah it, it's the bone growth. Unless, unless the bone growth totally closes off the ear canal, it shouldn't dramatically change the hearing. In other words, you could have, you know, 90% closure, but have normal hearing. And so usually that's a sign of something else is related to the nerves of hearing. And I mean, there really is kind of an epidemic of noise-induced hearing loss when you think about people using personal listening devices and earbuds and cranking up things to create their own little concert experience. I mean, you can do a lot of damage to your ears that way. I was, was going to ask about that. I mean, is that something that yeah. I mean, that's, is that something you're seeing more and more? I mean, I can't. I, I'm imagining a, a nation of deaf people in about 20 years. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a, that's a real concern. I mean, I think that there's so much going on out there with noise. And actually, another little plug I can give. There's a free phone app, iPhone app called. Um, NIOSH SLM, so N-I-O-S-H SLM. It's free, and it's a sound level meter you can have on your phone, and it's put up by the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, and it's been verified as being accurate. I take that along to concerts, and I usually have a pocket of earplugs, and if they're getting much over 95 decibels, I'll put the earplugs in and hand them out to people around me. Hmm. We were at a concert recently that uh, they were generating 115 decibels, and that's that's killing ear volume. I mean, you know, undoubtedly, there were thousands of people there. Undoubtedly, people lost hearing that night. Hmm. Or, you know, used, well, have a certain amount of reserve. You can tolerate a certain amount of loud sound, damaging sound, and feel like your hearing's okay. But once you use up that reserve, then you start noticing it. So a teenager's not so aware of that. Somebody in their 50s or 60s would be a little more aware of it. But, um, yeah, I think, I think we're heading towards more people having nerve-induced or noise-induced hearing loss because of all these things. So back to the surgery, how... How sure. long of a wait? Like, if it, do you are you still accepting patients? I mean, or how long? Of a... Yeah, yeah. No, we certainly are. I mean, I think like routinely, if somebody says, "Oh, put me on the schedule whenever I'll take the next opening," that's yeah. probably you know October, November, something like that. But you know, we we try to accommodate people all the time, and we fit people around the edges. I mean, there are some pretty desperate people that show up. I mean, I might have a few guys. I mean, I remember a guy in his early 30s who came in from Honolulu as a surfer. And he was wearing, you know, earbuds and uh, had a thing and a phone. And he was, I thought, did he listen to music? 
he was using it as an amplification device because his ears were so plugged up he really couldn't hear. He was really, really having trouble. Wow. And I've had people come in where their hearing was reduced as much as 70 decibels because they were so plugged up. Um, so, you know, that's really kind of a dangerous thing to be trying to go through life with that kind of hearing loss. So we're trying to help people. And, you know, and some people are experiencing frequent painful infections. So if we can, you know, get this thing open so they're not having that, it can really spare them some misery. So we try to be as accommodating as we can. But, yeah, routine scheduling can be out in a few months, but we're, you know, trying to fit people in around the edges when we need to. So we're reaching a lot of kayakers today, and I have to warn you, or I should ask, do you really want kayakers coming into your office? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think your reception sure. is going to be reaching for, this, for the phone. Happy to have well, I mean, I mean, the good news is that I mean, this technique is gradually finding its way more and more places. Um, and I've had people come from, I mean, I had had a surgeon come from New Jersey to come out and see how we did it. Um, there's people looking up and down the West Coast. Uh, I mean, I've published in medical journals. We're doing a talk at national and international medical meetings. I actually have a talk coming up in England in September and South Africa in October um, to try to kind of get the word out and you know make more people aware of it so it is more widely available. Are, are you um, the only person we'll, doing this type of surgery? No, I mean, there's uh, there are people that have kind of picked up on it. I mean, there's there's a number of people in Southern California, San Diego, Orange County, L.A., maybe kind of up to Santa Barbara. There's some people in San Francisco. I mean, I've had people come and watch, and, you know, some people are using the technique having just read my, you know, my published medical articles. Um, so it's it's finding its way out there, but it's you know, I've probably done as many as anybody has. I suspect I, I may have done as many as anybody in the world. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we'll like I said, we'll do whatever we can to accommodate people, or if somebody can find somebody locally that can do it for them, uh, more power to them. When you shave off these little bits of the bone and whatnot, how do you get them out of the ear? So when you're doing these things, again, it's analogous to like if you're splitting wood or working on a crystal. So a lot of times what will happen is it's not like it's driving it further in. It, it'll kind of do a partial uh, separation, and it may be hinged on the inside part. And then we take a little device that kind of levers it and rock it back and forth and crack it, and then you slide it out with a little tiny grasping device. It's called an alligator forceps. It has a little jaw as it opens and closes. So you separate it partially, crack it, grab it with the alligator, pull it out, and then repeat times 100 um, sometimes doing this kind of thing. How, how'd you get into this? <laughs> well, I was, you know, I was, uh, uh, in the specialty of otolaryngology or nose and throat surgery. And, uh, I thought Santa Cruz would be a nice place to live. I tend to, my main sport tends to be bicycling. There's some great bicycling around here. So I found my way to Santa Cruz and then started having all these people showing up in my office with their, their bony ears. And, uh, again, initially used the only technique I used, which was to use the drill and then I became a little concerned about if people in my specialty are the guardians of the ear. We were seeing some people that had some high-frequency hearing loss after the surgery that I attributed to the noise of the drill and sort of trying to think about, well, how can we do this without inflicting that noise injury on people? And then went back to the medical literature, and, you know, there were a couple guys that had written about it, and I uh, called up one guy in San Diego that had been talking about using this and got some ideas from him, and then we kind of developed our own technique and own instrumentation. And then it was interesting to me, like, when I first started using this technique was in 1998. And I think within a few months of doing a couple of these operations, I had people showing up from San Diego. I was like, well, how'd you even hear about this? It's like, well, just the word of the mouth, you know, people out in the water. And I think people were sort of desperate to have something done that didn't involve making the big cut behind the ear and all that went with that. Who was, and who was the it's just kind of grown from there. What, who's the first one? Yeah. Where well, you're like, I got, I I got this crazy did, idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, what if, you know, it's not like I threw away the drill one day and totally used chisels. I kind of blended in the use of chisels. So, say, you know, like for those early, early cases, 
I'd have a, somebody had a big mound of bone on the back and a really safe location towards the outside part of the air. Well, let me try just taking it off a little bit with the chisel here and see how that works. So I took off a little bit there and then I used the drill the rest of the way. And the next case, well, let me, tr it worked out well last time. Let me try a little bit more. And then just kind of kept evolving to the point now it's rare that I, I mean, there are rare occasions I might use a drill. If somebody's bone is totally pressing the skin against the eardrum, there's no space. I may make a little of a back cut with a drill, but that's become less and less frequent. I don't, I mean, since the beginning of the year, I think I've probably done a hundred years and I haven't used a drill at all. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's always available there as an option if I, if I needed to, but fortunately the, the chisel technique tends to work out really well for just about every year. If somebody, if somebody has this, this condition developing, like when is the time to get the surgery? Like, do you, is it best to wait until you absolutely possibly, you know, can't possibly do you know, without it? Yeah, or... my perspective is to, my perspective is to let the individual decide. I don't say, oh, you've hit the threshold and you've got to have surgery. And I also had some people come and tell me that they were told by your surgeons that, well, get it before it gets really, really bad because it's a really hard operation to do and it's really, really tight, which is true, but it's, it's sort of a catch-22. I don't want to be operating on people that aren't really having symptoms and don't need to go through an operation. You know, I'd like to make sure we're doing this for the right reasons. So my approach is generally, you know, in the office, we'll show people, here's what your ear looks like. You know what kind of symptoms you're having, how much trouble it's giving you. Do you want to go through an operation or not? It's really the individual's decision. So I just try to kind of educate them on the whole process and then let them decide what they want to do. But I think for most people, it's a matter of, yeah, water's getting stuck in there and, you know, maybe it's, you know, causing periodic infections that are just annoying. And uh, oh, another thing I might comment on, some people may do okay in cold water with whatever degree of narrowing they have. And they go to warmer water and they have a bigger problem because a lot of times in warmer water, you're in the water longer. There's oftentimes higher bacterial counts. And so people go off to the tropics, to paradise, to some wonderful place and want to have this wonderful vacation. And all of a sudden they have a painful, swollen, uh, closed up ear. Um, so a lot of people, I, I tell them to take along some antibiotic ear drops. If they're going to be going to warm water locations to head that kind of thing off, they could use the drops at the first sign of trouble. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of people going from cold water to warm water have a bigger problem. That that's so me. Like I can't get water out of my ear, especially my right ear, to save my life. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and again, I don't know if it's, the, if it's known in the kayaking community as much as in the surfing community, but they talk about putting like alcohol drops in there, uh, rubbing alcohol, which can help water evaporate, which is okay if you don't have a hole in the eardrum or it'll burn like fire. Um, and as long as you don't have like scratches in the skin, if there's any, you know, irritation of the skin that's, you know, abraded or something, that's going to be real uncomfortable. But uh, some people will kind of nurse things along by putting out, rubbing alcohol drops into the water evaporate and kind of string things along before they need surgery. How about those electric fans you can put in your ear? My dad does, he swears yeah. by this. I think <laughs> so those are fine. Actually, yeah, there was, there was a company, they originally, there was a company that developed in Southern California for people who wore hearing aids because they tended to trap a lot of moisture in the ear and cause infections. That's and then I think dad. they started marking to water sports people that help the water evaporate. I think those are great. I think yeah. that's fine. What are these? I've never even seen these. It, it looks like a there's, little fan. There's a mechanical one. You, there's one like a bulb one. Well, go ahead, Dr. Hesse, you can. Well, the one that I know of, there was a, uh, it was originally called the Sahara Ear Dryer. And I think the Max company, M-A-C-K apostrophe S, might have purchased it. And they can, you can get them online or maybe Target or someplace. And the ones I'm thinking of, it's a little rechargeable thing. It's got a battery in it with a, like a warm air blow dryer that blows out of this little tip and you stick the thing in your ear and it blows for like maybe 80 seconds or something and it's supposed yeah. to help the water evaporate and so that's yeah that's those are certainly legit is there any that's kind exactly of exactly my dad has that exact brand is is there any kind of way to heal from this like let's say you're a paddler and you're building up this you know bone mass in your ear canal and you take away the cold and over time will it 
will it heal itself or is it just there? I think it they can regress a little bit. I mean, bone in our body is a dynamic thing. We're laying down and reabsorbing bone all the time. Hmm. Um, so they can regress a little bit to, to go from a you know severely closed ear to a wide open ear. Not gonna, you're not going to see that happen. But it can regress a little bit. You know, if somebody's on the edge of really having problems and, and they become really, really good at keeping the cold water out, maybe it'll regress a little bit. Um, or, you know, there have been stories about people, for whatever reason, they, you know, were surfing and then they move away from the coast or, you know, family responsibilities or job, whatever, you know, they're not kayaking, they're not on the river as much. You know, maybe it'll regress a little bit if you're keeping the cold water away. Um, so if that's what people are willing to do, they can take that route. Um, but in terms of it, like really just melting away and just completely disappearing, haven't really seen that happen. Wow. Hmm. Super cool. That was very interesting. Hey, before we go, can I, can I ask you a favor, Dr. Hetzler? Sure. Can you explain to my wife that putting Q-tips in her ears like six times a day is not a good idea? I <laughs> so there's, yeah, there's a couple things about Q-tips. First of all, if you look on the side of the package, yeah. there's specific language, do not put in your ear. Right. If you look at that, it's interesting. It says that because, I mean, in, in, our, in my specialty, you know, anybody in my specialty probably sees one or two people a year that put a Q-tip through their eardrum. Right. So it happens. The eardrum is only about an inch down inside. So what I say, this is probably bad that I'm even saying this in public, but there is a safe way to use Q-tips. If you grab the Q-tip where the cotton meets the stick with your fingertips, that'll limit the depth to roughly a half an inch. The outer half inch of your ear is where the wax is made. There's thicker skin. So to go into that depth and kind of twirl it or rim, that's fine. If you go beyond that, you start getting risking, you know, pushing stuff down by the eardrum or touching the eardrum, which is bad. Also, the further you get in, the thinner the skin gets. So it's easy to bruise the skin or tear up the skin. And we certainly see people that are such compulsive Q-tip users. They kind of irritate mm -hmm. the skin, which then makes yep. it feel like it itches, like they got to use the Q-tip more, and then they use more abrasion, and it makes it worse, and on and on and on. So if you can break that cycle. But the key is control the depth. Certainly the safest thing is not to put a Q-tip in there at all. And if you get one of those little cameras, you can look in your ear and see if you got wax or not, if you need to get anything out. But, yeah, the Q-tip is not the most effective way of getting wax out. It's more like a plunger or a piston, and a lot of times we'll push stuff further in if you have any significant collections in there. Well, how do you get wax out of your ear? What's the best way to do it? So I have the, I have the good fortune of having two colleagues here that can uh, look <laughs> in my ears and uh, get this stuff out. Um, but I, also have, you know, I can also put the camera there and see if there's anything there and realize that, A, wax is good. It helps keep the skin moist. It has some antibacterial and antifungal properties. So in general, it just kind of, you know, kind of works its way to the outside, clean it with a finger and a washcloth and not be sticking things down in there too much. Super rad. This has been fascinating. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Doctor, we have, there's probably about 5,000 kayakers listening to this show, and I'd say probably <laughs> about 3,500 of them need your service. <laughs> <laughs> and so I apologize ahead of time if, for what's about to happen. If we if we send them your way, is there any way we can get like a ten percent discount for Hammer Factor <laughs> listeners? Is there like a is there like we'll a coo that. coupon we'll code that we negotiate that with their insurers? Coupon <laughs> code. All right. So, I, so just well, how, how 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 would they get a hold of you? What's what's the? I mean, obviously, I looked so you up on online. You were very yeah, easy to find. So our, yeah. So our phone number here. I guess I'll give our phone number out, and we'll hope our receptionist will be waiting. Um, the phone number here at the office is 831-458-6272. And uh, we have some very pleasant women that answer those phones and are happy to help people as best they can, as am I. And so if there's a lot of people that are having problems out there, you know, give us give us all the details and give us your best 
for you, and we'll see what we do to get you in sooner. Okay, so that's eight three one. Stock up on. That's eight three one four five eight six two seven two. Just say Hammer Factor Ten when you call. Yeah, and they'll yeah. they'll work yeah. on giving you a ten percent discount on your ear surgery. Yeah. That's uh, as as best my math can figure out. About eight hundred bucks per ear. The doctor is going to save you here. <laughs> I would stock up on air freshener for your waiting room right now. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty gross. Well, I was going to say, if, if people, we don't have, uh, we don't have, you know, amazing rivers to kayak out here, but we have a lot of nice ocean. Uh, there's some sloughs that have incredible birds migration through here. So there's some great places for kayakers to go. Um, or if you want to ride the waves, there's a, there's a lot of waves up and down the coast here. Yeah. My wife was uh, born and raised right there on Highway 17 off Summit Road, right there near you, between uh-huh. Los Gatos yeah. and, and Santa Cruz. So. Yeah. Cool area for sure. <laughs> well, well, that was great. That was incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time, Dr. Hetzler. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, so you much. for calling me, and uh, good luck to you all in your, uh, your water activities. All right. Thanks, great. Thanks again. Oh, man, that was fascinating, huh? Yeah. Did. My ears are so messed up. I got to figure out like a pro deal or something, like a sponsorship from this guy. I think it's good that we're about to have John Weld on the hot seat here because I I think we need to get into John's secret ambitions of being a doctor because I feel like you're always, you've got the ear guy, you've got our uh, infectious disease specialist, we've got Brent on. It's interesting, right? Well, I think think it comes. I think you have a little, a little, uh, I think it's a fetish. Closet doctor in you somewhere. In a different life. Oh, listen, we had a caller calling about, about surfer's ear, and I mentioned to Karen, she's like, you have to get this doctor on. I mentioned to Grace, and he was like, yes, absolutely. You're the only one poo-pooing it here. I'm not poo-pooing <laughs> it. Oh, that was great. All right, so this is, uh, this, this is our second half of the show. Somehow we got over our time limit in one call. <laughs> I don't even know how that happens. <laughs> Um, but we're putting Mr. Weld here in the hot seat, so we're going to pull the layers off. What is the, hot, what is the hot seat? I don't even know what this is. Well, basically, this is where we uh, kind of peel off the layers, get a little deeper, give our listeners uh, a little inside scoop into everything that is John Weld. A lot of this I know. A lot of this I don't know. I'm Lewis, really has, rock Lewis has known you <laughs> for a long, long time, and uh, I'm sure he'll have some in, insights. Um, Lewis, chime in here any, anytime you want. I have some questions. I'm going to read through these, but uh, feel free to, to This is going to be like the, like, like, this is your life, John Weld kind of deal. We should yes. have lined up some guests. <laughs> the condition, I'll do that. I'm, I'm fine with this, but I, I, I insist on a hot seat for John Grace. All right, we'll do that at some point. It's going to be hot. <laughs> Grace really is sort of the mystery man of the podcast, as I feel like at least one emailer has pointed out in the past. He will obfuscate and... and and cloud over and dodge. There'll be no, we're going to have to pry answers out of them. John, where were you born? And tell me about your parents. What'd they do? Uh, I was born in Sibley hospital in DC. And my dad uh, was an English teacher in uh, Montgomery college. And my mom was a, she had a bunch of jobs. She taught French at an elementary school, and I think she taught French at George Washington. She passed away when I was a kid, so I'm a little hazy on the details, but <clears throat> that's that's the long story. Or the long story short, there. How old were you when your mama passed away? 
I was 11. She had cancer. 11? Sixth grade. So they both sort of had a language background. This must explain why you're constantly correcting my grammar. (laughs) It's a bit of a tick. My dad taught specifically technical writing, so my entire life he was telling me I was splitting infinitives and to misusing my gerunds and stuff like that. So So what kind of kid were you? Were you you into sports? Were you into academics? What were you... uh... What, what were you into? No, I was. My parents made me play soccer, which I hated. And uh, so I, I grew up in the 70s, right? And so in the 70s, like canoeing, at least in the DC area, like canoeing, I think canoeing was like a big thing all over the country. Like think like deliverance, you know, and, and canoe clubs were a big deal. And I know so many people from my generation who learned to paddle this exact way. And back then, people would. You know, canoeing like on the weekend with your family was like a thing. That wasn't uncommon at all. Um, so my dad was in the canoe club uh, in D.C., the canoe cruisers, and he made me go in a canoe, and I got sick of sitting in a canoe, and he got me a kayak. And uh, that's where I, I found out there was other sports besides team sports, and that was the beginning of the end. That would be 1979 when I got my first kayak. That dates me a little bit there. So what was it? Just like the freedom of getting out of that canoe or like what bit you? Well, I had no choice. Like I had, I were going to the river for the weekend. You know what I mean? Like there was no choice. And it was either I sat in the canoe or I got to paddle my kayak. And so, you know, it started like that. But then I, so then I went to a summer camp, uh, Valley Mill camp in DC. <laughs> Valley Mill? Yeah. Um, <laughs> which was uh, run by the McEwen family. Uh, and of course, Tom McEwen was part of that and my instructor and basically what happened to valley mill was that uh, valley mill was a was a camp that was just a generic summer camp and um you know it lasted all summer long and a part of the program was kayaking you could get involved in kayaking and tom McEwen uh ran you know was you know in some degree running the kayak program there but he set the tone for the kayaking program like when those weekend kayaking trips or sort of extracurricular tom would be involved with those and I, and I think I speak for hundreds of kayakers. That was like the most transformative moment of my life, where I was exposed to. You know, I was I was I was fascinated by explorers and like I read books like about Sir Richard Francis Burton who discovered the source of the Nile and in Arctic exploration and people going to Northwest Passage. I felt like when I met Tom, I was meeting a real life explorer. I mean, granted, he was in kayaking, but he he was the real deal and we'd go out on these trips and they were you know you know i was just a sort of a middle class suburban kid you know on a friday and on saturday night we were on the side of the cheat river and it'd be sleeting and tom had forgotten to bring plates so we're eating off of rocks and (laughs) oh he was asking me to drive shuttle i was 14 and i mean it was just (laughs) a different life uh, that I loved. I loved every bit of it. And there was something called the red shirt at Valley Mill, where if you had got a, if you were a good enough kayaker and you displayed a hardcore attitude, you got this thing called the red shirt, which is sort of a cherished award in the summer camp. And getting the red shirt was so important for like four years of my life. And you had to demonstrate this hardcore attitude, which meant basically you had to put up with all manner of horseshit from whoever's running the kayaking <laughs> program and not complain at all. And you just took enormous pride in that. And that that was the beginning of the end. After that, I was like, I want to live my life like this somehow. So, wow. yeah, when you went this program, you think, am I, am I hitting the right notes here? Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, it's, it's kayaking, but it's also like an ethic 
you know right. like, it's like the hardcore sleeping. attitude right that is like that's <laughs> that defines everything that you aspire to that's and right. it's like like who is the most hardcore like who yeah. could put up the most nonsense you know be the most cold and complain the least you know be the most scared and and still you know put the spray skirt on peel out and run the rapid you know what and i mean it just, it becomes so ingrained that it's like like whenever you're failing to live up to it and somebody reminds you of that it's just like this like instantaneous like sensation of horror you're like oh god like i complained <laughs> like <laughs> you take a hundred kids 95 of them would be like i don't even understand what you're talking about this hardcore what and that's just dumb and there would be five of us who would it would be it would be the the most important thing in our life you know there would be no other way of living besides that you know yeah i feel like that's like in a way that's what sort of prevents this attitude or this mode of teaching kids from like living on or uh like like having wider traction is because it's just sort of premised on 95 percent of the people dropping out and that's just sort of like the expected <laughs> outcome you know it's like but i mean the thing is is you 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 know you're obviously an impression you're an impressionable time in your life when you're 16 15, you know 12 13 14 15 16 17 when this is going on and by the time you're 18 i mean you know it was like going through a, a six-year boot camp you, you, you know um, and then my threshold for people outside of that mentality going through like the next 10 years of my life, extremely low. Oh God. You know, and I, I would just sought, I sought more people who had that same mentality. That's what kept me in kayaking. You know, I mean, I went to college, I studied English, but the whole time I was doing that, I was like, I, I, I have to get back to my peeps, you know? And so I graduated from college and my dad was insistent I get a job. So I got a job working for the Department of Energy. Uh, in 1990, uh, like as I don't know, doing something, and uh, it lasted for like three months, and that was it. And I went back, I got it rafts for precision rafting that next summer, and taught kayaking, and that was the end of it. Uh, the real life, real world wasn't for me. What college did you go to? Maryland. So you went to Maryland. Yeah, my You're dad. My dad said you can go any state, any school you want, any as long as it's a state school and it's in Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a therapist. Uh, yeah. So somewhere along the line, you met your wife Kara, and yeah. eventually, IR came to be. How'd you meet Kara, and did that happen at the same time as IR? Before IR, give me a timeline of how all that went down. So Kara was. You know, in the in the 80s and 90s, she was an up and coming slalom racer. Us DC paddlers, at least from that era, kind of poo pooed slalom as kind of like something like the fancy pants did. You know, sort of a, an elitist, <laughs> you know, uh, thing. But we, I, everyone knew Kara Rupel. Like she was like, you know, this girl who kayaked, and I never met her before. And so, I, I you know, I knew her from reputation, just from racing and whatnot. And so, uh, my junior year. In, college uh, i was driving in the beltway um in my my vw bug with a wild water boat on the roof and joe jacoby drove up next to me joe jacoby was uh, also on the c2 u.s team for c2 and ended up winning the gold medal like two years later in the olympics but he was passing us in the beltway and Kara was in the car with him and he was he was rolled on the window and was like well and so we pulled over at an exit and that's where i met Kara. when i met her <clears throat> i was like yep I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta hook up with this girl. 
And so her dad ran a kayak school, and I got a job that summer teaching kayaking at Riversport to meet Kara. And so I went up there. She had a boyfriend, a guy named Brian Homburg, who is a great friend of ours nowadays. But when I met Brian, I was like, man, I got this. this <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Brian. <laughs> uh, we started dating in the fall. That fall, fall of 89, we started dating. So. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> you know, a good, a good, a good friend of mine, Fred Coriel. He's got some great stories about Kara. Like, definitely, everybody was like, "Kara's so hot." Like, I've heard so many stories about that. You know, from yeah. back in the day. I'll, I'll fill you in on some of them. You may not know right. about these stories. Just <laughs> here. So then, IR came along. Now, wait a second. Before we get into IR, were you crossing yeah. islands and going to Borneo and this whole? One of the super interesting things to me early, early, early on when I knew about you, this is like 20 years ago, was this uh, island crossing thing. In my head, yeah. it was like the one legitimizing thing that you did. I was just like, this dude's a badass. He did all these things. <laughs> That's what it took. So what, like, was that before IR, after IR? And how did that happen? How did you get into crossing islands? Like, what was that your idea? What the... So, uh, let's see, uh, by the mid eighties and late eighties, I was going to college, you know, kayaking was becoming, you know, a full-time passion. Now, man, you got to understand it's a different era, you know, in terms of what we're doing, but nonetheless, we were kind you know, I was really keen on figuring out how to paddle full-time when I got out of college, you know, I was teaching kayaking during the summer. Uh, and then, um, I was building boats, building kayaks for a guy named Andy Bridge. We we're building sort of high-end slalom race boats in the D.C. area during the winter. This would be early 90s. Um, and at the same time, well, during that time, you know, I was, Andy Bridge and I um, were working together. But Andy, I, I'm trying to think how this exact came to pass. But the, 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 we were basically of the, working on this idea. Andy and I started sort of exploring this idea of, doing longer and longer multi-day kayaking trips, sort of what we called an alpine style, where you'd read about, like, Ken Warren rafting the Tiger Leap Gorge, you know, in China with a a group of, like, 60 people um, in rafts and, you know, know, taking weeks to go 10 miles, right? And it'd be very similar to, like, Hillary's expedition up Everest, where he had, uh, you know, porters and cases of champagne and tables and... You know, it was a whole drawn-out thing, and then you know this this uh, people like Shipton, you know Eric Shipton and Bill Tillman came along and started pioneering mountain routes with just two people, where they were doing the same things and you know a, a thousandth of the cost and a hundredth of the time, and so we started looking at taking kayaks and using them in the same way, and figuring out where we could explore using whitewater kayaks. So we're going to places like Newfoundland and doing a lot of stuff in Mexico, and I was doing a ton of kayaking in Latin America. Um, and you know, part of it was running hard white water. We were pretty good at running hard white water, but the bigger thing for us was exploration. Like, how far could you get out on a white water kayak, and how you know how many miles could you cover? Um, and uh, and so, with that mindset, Andy puts together this trip um, where we're going to cross Baffin Island, uh, which is the th- uh, fifth largest island in the world, it's in the Arctic Circle. And the basic premise of the trip was, was that we were going to land in the middle of the island at the base of the Barnes Ice Cap and paddle down to the ocean about 
90 miles or so and then along the we're gonna we're gonna paddle on the coastline of baffin island for 30 or 40 miles sort of looking out for polar bears then we're going to paddle back upstream 100 miles back up to the top of the the river this is like class four or five white water wasn't a flat water river so we're going to attain back upstream for a week or so back up to the top of the ice cap and then descend out the other side um that was our first big trip and we actually wrote a bunch of grants to do that and at the time we're writing grants to people like gore-tex and polar tech who who make uh you know the fleece um these were traditionally climbing grants going out to mountaineers um at the time I mean, even it's certainly the case now, but even back then, doing first descents in mountains were getting tougher and tougher. And some of these grants were like, we're gonna go up the such and such face of load sea with one hand tied behind our back, with you know, bringing whatever. And so, th- these were honest to god first descents and first descents, and we were exploring you know heretofore unknown territories, you know, or very very thinly explored ter- territories for sure. So we won a couple grants to do that trip. Um, the other big trip we did was a few years later um, where uh, we were reading about um, British military exercises in Borneo where they were, they were in Borneo paddle or you know on foot the British military was covering like two miles a day on foot through the jungle and right away we were thinking this could be a great place to kayak and so a couple couple years later we uh, we crossed Borneo by wetwater kayaks we paddled you know we, we went upstream for a couple hundred miles went to the top of the island at about three or four thousand feet and then went down the other side of the island. Um, and once again, we went to the, you know, wrote a bunch of grants to do that trip as well. There was, a, you know, countless other expeditions in there, you know, but those are the, those are the two big ones that we did. So was this before IR? Yeah, this will all be in the mid-90s, right before IR. So I was teaching kayaking a lot. And then the last trip I was supposed to go on was sort of the ill-fated McEwen trip on the uh, Sang Po, which is something I've been dreaming about my entire life, and, and I bowed out at the last minute for a variety of reasons. But um, anyway... So then you get back from the trips and you're dating Kara while you're on these trips? Like Yeah. Yeah, we started dating in eighty nine, yeah. So so yeah. Uh she was still racing, so she was in the US kayak team. You know, we were living on eight thousand dollars a year pretty much. Uh we had health insurance. We got married in ninety five, ninety six, something like that. So I got health insurance when got married through that but 96 ish i was i was ready to think about how to make a living kayaking besides just teaching you know because it was believe it or not it's tough being in a boat 250 days a year people it it is great for a while but after a couple years you you know it starts to grind at you a little bit you know and so Uh, and so you had these jobs yeah and when did you know that you were going to be like when did the entrepreneurial bug bite you like how did you know you were going to start a business well i was making so i was so during like 94 95 i I got a home sewing machine and i was making board shorts in my basement like you know like like board shorts for you know you were surfing and uh at the time i was teaching kayaking and i was watching the age of my students get younger and younger and younger i mean the like when i first started teaching kayaking in the late 80s a typical student would have been professional you know, who wanted to, you know, who aspired to run the lower yacht, you know what I mean? So this is a guy in his 30s, you know, had some money, disposable income. Um, creek boating and sort of the extreme side of kayaking really wasn't a thing, but by the mid-90s, it was becoming a thing for sure. And the age of my students was dropping into the 20s. And kayaking gear at that time, you know, if you look back, look back to like the 1988, would have been like Stolquist, would have been cutting-edge kayaking gear. So, you know, 
black, black or blue or teal. Those would be your color choices. Very basic stuff, but no. It's some generic outdoor gear. You know, there was no personality to it. You know, and so anyway, I was making board shorts, which is what I wore kayaking because I used to get. You know, most people who paddle every day in the water, if you wear mesh line shorts, you get ass rash like nobody's business. And so I was making board shorts in my basement on a home sewing machine. I started making more and more of them. And was that and for you? That was just for you? you and me making? and my friends. Okay. Me and my friends, yeah. And I sent a pair to Denver McClure, who's working at Stark Moon Outfitters in Fayetteville. And Denver, you know, uh, if you're listening, uh, he, I've, he's heard me thank him a million times, but I'll, I'll thank him again. He said, man make a dozen of these i'll sell them in my store i was like really he's like yeah and so uh that's what i did um and he sold them and you know that fall the fall of 96 when we incorporated you know i was like we should do this for a living and so i i had you know i knew nothing about sewing but we i had a couple thousand dollars saved up and we bought we bought a bunch of we bought five industrial sewing machines and moved them into a, a sort of a, a closed up ford auto body uh where a uh, shop in town here in confluence we blew you know cleared the dust away and set up our sewing machines and started sewing shorts and that was the beginning of beginning of ir huh. so it was a crazy time i mean kakai was growing gangbusters and you know i started sewing full-time in the fall of 96 you know i stopped building kayaks and and uh, teaching kayaking, and I sewed full time, you know, working a sewing machine for about four or five years. And in '96, we had two employees, Kara and myself, and she was answering the phone and setting snaps and cutting fabric. And I was sewing. By 2001, I think we had 50 people working for us. So we're almost wow. 50. Yeah. That's wild. So I remember. It was crazy. I remember hanging out with you at the slalom race in Snyder's Mill, New Hampshire, and I, I thought this was more like '97, but like when you were trying out potential names for IR yeah. and the candidates You're definitely were, poking around. <laughs> yeah. I think the candidates were snagware, which was my vote. Business. You have to understand, like and, when we started this rule, like this is going to last a year and then it's going to fall apart. You know, Icarus, we I think something was another one. Icarus. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. I remember that. But this is very jokey. Like we were not serious about this. <laughs> we kind of were, but and so at some point you've decided to become an entrepreneur. It's, you don't realize it, but after a few years you become unhirable to anyone else. So you're stuck. I'll, I'll tell you what happens. There's a, there's a whitewater analogy. What happens is is that when you start your own business, unless you have unless you come for money or you have some 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 investor, which we certainly did did not and do not. Um, uh, you have to at some point bet way more than you can afford to lose uh you know um it's, it's based on a churchill quote you don't really lose you don't really learn the rules of the game to you bet more than you can afford to lose and it's just like running a rapid at some point you're going to decide you're going to run that rapid you're going to peel out and there's not a lot you can do until you get to the bottom <laughs> you know all your buddies are up in the bank watching and yeah we hit that point pretty early on about 99 you know the the financial reality of ir was that we couldn't afford Unless we were willing to lose everything, we couldn't afford to not do it anymore. So that's when you're forced to becoming an entrepreneur. I, I guess the entrepreneur is the person who's who can look at that and be like, "Yeah, okay, we're going to go forward." Because I think a lot of people get to that point. Where we're like, "No, I don't. We, I don't have the stomach for this." Yeah, for so. sure. I always find entrepreneurs and all the businesses and people I've worked with super interesting and a totally different perspective on the way things 
are happening happening all around them. What yeah. advi- what advice would you give for someone like, you know, we've we've interviewed some people starting kayaking companies and things like that for even outside of whitewater. Anybody who's listening who wants to start some business, what what advice would you have for them? You know, yeah, I, I give some, I give some very short good advice. I think um, first of all, everyone's going to tell you you can't do it for whatever reason. We started IR. My dad said it was the stupidest idea he ever heard, uh, it, because he wanted me to get like a real job with a pension. You know, he taught English for a bunch of years and it worked out well for him. Um, don't listen to them. It, you, you know, people are going to say you can't do this because everyone else is doing it, or uh, you know, you, your your idea isn't good enough, or whatever. Uh, the thing is, is if if, if you have a product, you, you know, if you have a decent product, um, if you answer the phone and you're honest to your customers, and you treat your customers well, uh, and when people call you, you 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 give them the straight answer and a knowledgeable answer, and you have their best interest in mind, things always seem to work out. And if you think about your experience dealing with customer service, especially now, because I feel so strong with such a customer service experience, that when you when something breaks, like your cell phone or your TV or your cable goes out, you know it's going to be a clusterfuck. It's just not going to work the way you want it to work. And it's going to be a huge waste of your day to deal with this. People are shocked when you can help them right away. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and if you can do that, that matter what you're doing i think that's going to be a tremendous benefit to your business and it's gonna make things a lot easier yeah i think that's super good advice a long time ago i figured out that even if you can help someone make a buying decision and it's not your product or your service but you've helped them make a decision in the end they're gonna like you for that you've helped them even though it didn't necessarily benefit you it's like you know the next time around you're gonna be first in the list what about what about your uh what about your biggest, your favorite product, your biz, biggest successes? What are the things that IR that you've made? Which, I mean, you guys have made everything from elbow pads to backbands to so many different things. What is, what's your, what's your favorite products? The ones you are like, yeah, this was a badass idea. That's a tough one. The seat is hot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, I guess to answer that question, I, I have to I have to make a shout out to a guy named Just Whittemore who's been with us for forever, fifteen years. Who, uh, if if you've been in paddling long enough, you know Just Whittemore is certainly like back in the '80s, he was the man. Um, he sort of he would be I would call him the founder of squirt boating, right next to Jim Snyder. Um, you know, Jim and Jeff sort of pioneered a sort of a small a, a smaller sleeker squirt boat but he was the first making these long squirt boaty type things and in 1988 there was no one cooler than jess whittemore but we were fortunate enough to get him on board um in the 2000 somewhere 2002 something like that but he's a you know he's a mechanical genius and so he, he he's over the past 15 years he's a lot of what we make is the extensions of his his ability to figure out materials and constant stuff like that and so um you know, if you ask what our favorite product is, I, I, the most interesting product we make is the dry suit. It's the most frustrating. It's the most difficult. It took us the longest to figure out how to make, but when it's 
you know, when it's done right, it's, it's definitely the most rewarding. Um, you know, and I mentioned Jess because I don't want anyone to get the impression this is just me sitting, you know, designing all these things myself. It's not. This is a collaborative effort, and we're all involved. And Jess, you know, is so much a part of like figuring out how to get tape to stick to weird things and how to test all these things and sourcing material and all this stuff. But you know, as a business, I'm going to say, you know, the dry suit. Um, you know, it took us like I remember giving Daniel, poor Daniel Deliver, and we gave him a, our first dry suit we ever made. Uh, <laughs> he took it to that. the Stikine. It was like a sort of a puke brown dry suit. <laughs> that poor guy froze his ass off in that thing because it sucked. And we made some shitty, shitty dry suits in the year years after that. And I think I've taken care of any customer who's just gotten those. Very expensive to learn how to make those. You have to have a real stomach for for losing money and paying to put up with them. But um, yeah, but you know, we're making dry suits now for 15 or 12 years, something like that. But I would say that's the that's the that's the the most rewarding to make for sure. You know, um, I just wish I wish the sport was. 20 times bigger because the amount of work that goes into making a dry suit, the amount of preliminary work that goes into making it, it's, it's hard to justify in the sales to whitewater kayakers, but it is what it is. Um, so One people, people, people know I offer spray skirts. I spray skirts are a bitch, man. They're, they're no fun. Dude, um, that look, that Royal flush is badass though. I've had the same one for four years now and it's still bomber. Yeah, they're very spray skirts are very, very, very difficult to make. Particularly randed spray skirts, extremely difficult to make. Um, they really, if you look at the money, it makes no sense. You know, making a randed spray skirt, uh, it's really a craft. It's not like a pair of shorts. You just you put an assembly line, you can make it. Randed spray skirts are an art form. You know, they're basically, you know, every single one has to be put together with craftsman like quality. You know, um, and it's a work of passion, but it's not. It's not great for the bottom line, I'll tell you that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited where we are with spray skirts right now. I mean, I, but phew, it's a tough one. I gotta say that that spray, like the IR spray skirts, is like that is one of the only like perfect products that I know of. You know, like I feel like well. almost. I mean, as you well know, I have complaints about everything and every single thing. There's something <laughs> I wish were a little different. Yeah, and it's like you know, like there's just like a couple things that I own that i'm like that is like a, a pretty pretty fucking spot-on product you yeah know? yeah i'm in the same boat I, I can't even think the, of what else i would put in that category you know it's tough we have to we have to make our spray skirts fit a wide variety of cockpit rims because stores and customers don't want to buy have to choose from 10 sizes you know what i mean they want to choose from three sizes the most you know large extra large xxl that's about as much as we can get away with. So these things have to stretch to fit all these crazy shaped rims boat designers keep coming up with. And when you do that, the materials you can use for a spray skirt drastically narrow down. I mean, there's neoprene. And the reinforced material you can put in neoprene that stretches to meet all these things and puts over the abuse that white water tires give it, that's still under, you know, makes the skirt still come under $500. Extremely small. I mean, it's, it's not an easy product to design, you know. Um, so so getting towards the end of my question list here what you've seen the ebbs and flows of the sports obviously through this interview starting way back in valley mill like what what where do you see what do, what do you see the future of of whitewater like i i know yeah, there was river. i i know there was a time when it was going to be big you know there was a time that everybody thought this was going to be the next what 
snowboarding or whatnot. But like, realistically, right now, what do you think? Are, are we in a growing sport? Or are we in a dying sport? What do you what do you, what do you think? I think the sport. I think the future of sports in river running. You know what I mean? I think you have play boating and SUP and whatever SUP and stuff like that. But you know, I think those are diversionary. I think the 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 thing that hooks people for life in kayaking is river running. You know, um, putting on in one place, taking out another. Right. Uh, and so, um, I, I mean, that, that's that's where I think we need, you know, in terms of promoting the sport, that's where we need to focus on. And by the way, I, I, are we going to do rants and raves today? Why not? But don't get into I it got, yet. I got, I got a serious rant. <laughs> um, the biggest challenge we face, like, I think is, uh, at least in the United States, is... Um, you know, people say, well, you know, and this is true to an extent, you know, only certain people are going to go kayaking. You know, there's just a lot of people are just going to be too scared to, to flip over. And that's that's always been true. Right. And so that's always going to be a limiting factor in the sport, you know, that people just don't want to flip over in a kayak. And I, I understand that. But that's I don't think that's what's curtailing the growth in our sport. It's it's the way kids are being raised nowadays um, and the sedentary lifestyle that a lot of these kids are leading and or uh sort of the the very organized team sport type um activities that kids are getting routed into early on i I don't want to bash on team sports but like i know my kids are you know 10 and 13 and a lot of their friends are like you know we have soccer practice from this time to this time and we have track practice this time to this time every weekend we're going to a soccer game you know it's very organized very circumscribed activities um there's very little emphasis put on individual sports like climbing or biking or kayaking um and i think we could have we could see real growth in the sport if we just had a cultural shift in that regard uh, how, how the hell we're supposed to fix that i don't know but i mean that's the obstacle we face what about what about what about clean water like do you think that like having a clean river to go kayaking in is the only reason i say this is we had a big rain this weekend and there's a wave on the french broad french broad that we call the poop line and so it's basically yeah. it's an incredible wave. It's like pretty much as good as like the dries on the new. And it only comes in when the French broad's like ten grand or something, but it's right below the sewage treatment plant. Inevitably when the river is that high, it's, it's but I long story short, I finally talked Woody Callaway into going out there with me and checking out this wave. How long Woody's been kayaking around Asheville, I have no idea, but he had never been to this wave. Finally I talked him to go out there. He had a blast. He was like, You're right, you're right, you're right. But when we got the river, it's like, ah, man, the water was just so dirty. I don't think I'm going to come back. That kind of like struck a nerve with me. I was like, man, is that going to be an impediment to people getting into kayaking? Because they just, the word on the street is the river is dirty. I don't feel qualified to answer that. I will say I've been around long enough to remember the Tomek as it was being cleaned up by the Clean Water Act. I remember getting progressively cleaner as, as I was paddling on that river. It's, you know, even at that young age, seeing a huge difference. You know, I remember the Tomek being a stinking mess. Right when I first started paddling. Hmm. So, well, that's it. You survived the hot seat, dude. That's all I got for that you. It was easy. Man. I mean, yeah, I was well, going to okay, be like, so I read your I read your interview in a kayak session, by the way. And who who interviewed you? Um, a couple people did. Um, Anna and Toon both came up with those those questions. Yeah. Someone asked if this was the Hammer Factor is basically a prolonged commercial for IR. <laughs> <laughs> which this whole thing just feeded 
feeds right into that conspiracy theory. Oh, come on. It's, that is totally – but hey, did you see my answer? I was 100 percent honest. I, I try very hard not to plug IR in this, this show. Yeah, yeah. I just try and parlay my experience to the industry. That's all. <sighs> when was the first play? When, when, when did you and Kara hook up for the first time? Um, <laughs> oh, come on. Don't act like you don't remember. <laughs> yeah, I do remember. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't. not going the direction I think I should go. <sighs> Lewis, do you have any questions for John? Um, no. Dude, you survived the hot seat. I kept it, I kept it easy. I could have gone into some, like, you know, more more controversial topics, but I decided not to. Who was your crew at Valley Mill, like, growing up or, like, like kind of, like, in your heyday? Forrest Noble, who still kayaks. In fact, he was just up here this week with his kid, Ryder, who is exactly like Forrest Noble when he was a kid. Like, it's (laughs) creepy. Um... And I know a lot of people out there know Forrest because everybody knows Forrest. Uh, Alex Markoff was was he was a little bit younger than us, but he was part of the crew. Joe Jacoby to some extent, although Joe kind of got routed in the slalom circuit pretty early on. Um, Eric Schumann, I don't know if he's still, I don't I've seen that guy in forever. Uh, who else? Uh, Nelson Oldham, of course. Nelson was probably my primary paddling companion. He went to Borneo with us um, for for many many years. Uh, who else? Those are, the, those are the the ones that come to mind right right off the bat. In the formative uh, years, indeed, dude. Everybody I know right? that comes like if they survive Valley Mill, the Whitewater program, they're a lifer. I think that's right. You know, it's like if you got your red shirt, if you got your red shirt, yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna say it's being like in the Marines, but it's something like that. All you right. still have your red shirt? Oh yeah. Do you? I think it's in a box. All right, we're getting off. We're getting off on some tangent here. That's another show. Uh, We're at an hour and 20 minutes here, so let's get into everyone's favorite part of the show. This is the Rants and Raves, where our hosts go on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave, depending on how they're feeling. John, I believe you have a big rant that you want to throw out here. Let's hear it. I do. So, uh, first of all, I'm paddling the upper yacht with my 13-year-old and which is so awesome grace you have such a treat ahead of you and lewis gelman <laughs> you gotta drag together my friend <laughs> i was gonna leave it at that but time's running out uh anyway so my 13 year old now is paddling the upper yacht which means like he's like do you want to go paddling i'm like yes i do because we're going to the upper and then we went to paddle the top yacht because we came in we went to paddle the top yacht on Sunday morning, no, Saturday morning, and then we had about a couple hours to kill, and we were going over to the upper yacht in the afternoon to do sort of high water run down the upper. So we decided we're going to go to ASCII, the artificial course at uh, the top of Wisp, to check it out because you'd never seen it. So we pull up, and it's running. There's people going down the river, right? And so here is this multi million dollar artificial course. It actually looks pretty fun. I mean, you know, it's a quarter, a quarter mile long or something, but it has some interesting features. and you know, some rafters going down, and we go over to see if we could kayak this thing, right? And so uh, we get routed into the main office of ASCII, which looks like it looks like a rest stop as you enter Maryland. There's like some brick of some touristy bric-a-brac, you know, and some T-shirts that were like, you know, whatever for Maryland, or and then there's a 
very pleasant looking sort of elderly woman behind the counter and I'm like can we what do we what do we need to do to kayak today and she goes well you got to first schedule a rafting trip to go down <laughs> the rapids of the raft you have to do that first which is going to cost how much money and then you need to have a guide take you down in the kayak right uh and, Dude, and things have gone off another... the rails up there huh and what? so right and so i'm like what are we doing here guys so we're in between the top yacht which is you know class four plus we went to the upper yacht running two and a half feet which is you know a stout level and uh not stout but you know relatively high water and totally shut down on ascii uh, I don't know. It left such a bad taste in my mouth. I'm like, what the hell are these people doing up here with this this resource? You know, that's so lame. It is that so sucks. lame. Huh. Just lame, 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 lame. ASCII, if you're listening, get your shit together, man. <laughs> you need to figure out how to get some kayakers on that river. You have this resource here. Jesus. Well, I'll back that up with a rave. So, do you guys know Tad Dennis? Yes. yes, I know where you're going with this. Okay, so I recently yes. just had some dialogue with Tad Dennis. And so Tad goes up to the Stikine with a lot of other of our friends, Jeff Calhoun, you know, the whole crew that goes up there, which, you know, I'm extremely jealous. And I'm always just following the flows. I'm like, I've got a ticker that every morning I know that every morning I get a, I get a notification that tells me what the level is. And the whole nine yards. And Tad, C1-er, if you know Tad, um, goes out there in a C1 run site Z on the Stikine. So without getting into too much detail, anyone who ever goes out there in that place, in the middle of nowhere, and runs that rapid and does so successfully, it's a big deal. Well, then Tad goes back up, gets down to the bottom. I don't know if he's got like an extra boat or if he goes in and puts his outfitting in or how he does it. But then he decides to go back up do another lap in a kayak and paddles the whole river and also runs site Z. So I'm just going to say as someone who has paddled a C1 and hand paddled and all sorts of stuff to just go up there and repeat that back to back. I'm blown away and I'm raving about Tad Dennis. So follow, find him on the social platform or whatever, because if you want to see someone doing something totally, I don't see anybody else doing to that level. Um, C1. I bet there's kayakers out there who have never seen a C1 on the river, right? <laughs> like you could paddle for years in the lower yacht and not see a C1, or at least a season. Yeah, a C1 makes no sense no, as a whitewater it's, craft. It's silly, but yet people silly. do it, right? I mean, no sense. And maybe it's a slalom discipline. I can see kind of a lineage there, but as a whitewater craft, it's like skiing with one ski. Like your other foot just hanging out. Just yeah. flailing. Right? And Tad's a guy who's been C1ing for like forever, and he's been kayaking for two years, and his line was way better in his kayak. So I don't right. know what's... So, when you run Site Z in a C1, you're basically making a mockery of that rapid. <laughs> God, for all I'm intents amazed if there's purpose. any C1er on Earth who has enough enough confidence in his home crafted outfitting to send himself into that thing. Be like, Oh, flew out of thigh strap. Like <laughs> anyway, credit or credits oh, do big, and, big rave to dad. Yeah. yeah. And like, I know that like, if you like 
are thumbing through Instagram now, it's like all you're seeing is site Z lines and like you, you see that people are running this thing more and more frequently. But like, like, do not let that lead. Don't let that don't lead. have that lead you to believe that that is not just like phenomenally gnarly rapid. I mean, it's like it's a testament. It's like there's like rapids out there where like, you know, like like the right side of the spout or something where like when we were kids, we were like, if you go over there, you're going to die. And then everybody started running them. And it's not that like anybody got better. It was like they just are seeing it with fresh eyes and like we were wrong. Sight's Head is not like that. No. Like Sight's Head is actually that gnarly. And it's just that the level of kayaking going on up there is just that high because like it is all you imagine it to be in your worst nightmare and then some. One of the guys that I heard this Tad Dennis thing and de- declared that Sight's Head was the next Gap Falls. <laughs> 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 Shut us down here, Lewis. Gap Falls, those show knows like a class, the entry rapid of the upper yacht. It's easy class four. Class three, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, man, this is a lame rant, but I'm, I'm so sick of summer. I hate summer. It's so hot here. There are tourists everywhere. There's no water in the river. The bike trails are like moon dust. Just like like every day, it gets to be five o'clock, and I'm like, thank God it's one day closer to winter. <laughs> Dude, the water's so good out here right now. It's 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 unbelievable. I know, here. I've just been southeast is the new Pacific Northwest. Dude, I've been riding on high volume for three weeks straight. It's been ridiculous. I know we have we have we've had tons of rain here too. And Lewis, by the way, I'm moving out there next week. <laughs> you really anticipate your arrival. I'll make up the couch. All right. I don't know what I'm getting myself into. There's Hammer Factor number 55. Thank you so much for listening, and we will hopefully have another one coming soon.